Hi and welcome to Authorised, the podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier and today, Jock Zonfrillo, a name and a man you know very well. You're going to find out a lot about him today you probably didn't know uh, through the pages of his autobiography, Last Shot. We'll talk more about that and to Jock in just a minute. But our thanks to our terrific podcast partners, CSCG, and they're terrific because they know what they're talking about when it comes to finance. Now, whether you want to have a chat to them about your tax situation, your superannuation, your financial planning for the future, lending, borrowing, whatever it is, they have experts in the field. You can find out all about them by jumping on their website. You'll see the people that you're dealing with, cscg.com.au, or give them a call uh, on double nine seven four eight triple three. Always up for a chat about uh, what's going on in the finance world. And they keep up to date with everything that's going on, obviously, and they'll give you answers to the questions that you have, cscg.com.au. Let's get to our guest for this edition of Authorised. Jock Zonfrillo is a, a face and a name we know very, very well. Going to find out a lot about him today that you probably didn't know previously through the pages of his autobiography, Last Shot. So let's meet Jock and have a chat. Let's talk about your book. Was it a long process for you to write it? Did it spill out of you easily? Or how, how did that whole sort of process of going from zero words to, you know, a completed book go for you? It was definitely a slow process for me. I'm not a uh, – it's my first time around. You know, I've written a couple of articles here and there, but certainly never written a book or a novel or anything. So, yeah, definitely a slow start. I couldn't really, I guess, understand not only how to sort of um, – go back through and sit in those memories. I didn't realise how tough that would be. And I didn't then realise how tough it would be to follow, a, a, I guess, a story arc and a timeline. Yep. And so uh, Simon Schuster Publishers were able to help me a lot with that because I just I didn't, I wasn't getting it uh, at all at the beginning. So that was, yeah, hence to me saying it was a slow start. I found it tough, you know, and I think it just, I felt like it was demanding, you know, like physically because I didn't, I didn't know how to be an author. It's like, you know, it's demanding because mentally you're putting yourself back in a, a time and a place where, you know, you feel shame or you, it makes you feel vulnerable and all those other things uh, when you're writing this type of book particularly. But also not knowing that I'm not good at what I was doing at that moment, uh, as in writing, yeah. um, I found that really challenging. Would your English teacher from school be surprised that you'd actually, you know, written a book? Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I think my, my English teacher would be shocked, frankly. Uh, I, I wasn't, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't great at school. I didn't sort of, uh, uh, I wasn't a, a very academic kid. I, I really didn't want to be in school. I found it um, pretty tough. And I think it wasn't until I, I started working part-time in, in kitchens that, that I really found a sense of um, belonging, if you like. I certainly didn't feel as if I belonged to school and I didn't enjoy it. So, um, yeah, my English teacher would be shocked, I imagine. Yeah. So was it difficult, I mean, when you start to open up that, that sort of part of your life, for, you know, the, the trying to steal cars when you're an 11-year-old and, and, and the things that you got up to in your youth, uh, when you started to open up that can of worms, was that, was that a cathartic experience or was it a frightening experience for you? <laughs> Neither. Uh, definitely not cathartic. I think a lot of people say that. I just don't. I, I think for me it just was, was, it was a bit traumatic going back and, and remembering uh, all of the all of the naughty things, all of the very unsavory things in, in my life, one after the other. It's kind of, you know, it's just like a, it starts off as a little jab, you know. You, the, 
you talk about one thing, another thing, you know, it's just like little jab, little jab, little jab. And then every now and again, if you've read the book, you, you'll see that there's just a right hook comes out of nowhere yeah. and just, you know, it's like a knockout. But, you know, you get back up again and you keep going. And it wasn't really until I'd finished the book and, and my wife read it and she's just like, this is, people are going to find this tough to read because it's, it's unrelatable to, you know, uh, someone like me who's Australian and my version of growing up as a kid in Australia. It's just, there are no similarities here, you know? Um, so I think that challenged me then to sort of sit in my, life and and my situation have then written it down i found that tough i found it tough to resonate with um i i really struggled emotionally to 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 revisit all of those things in one in one moment in one book you know yeah Oh, I can imagine because I know reading it uh, when when Billy is murdered uh, when you when you're out and about in the streets of Glasgow and and mm-hmm. you know I think you were twelve or thirteen at that that time yep. and he gets murdered uh, beaten beaten up and murdered by uh, stabbed to death that was uh, a moment for me reading the book where I went Jesus Christ it, it just and look there, there will be you could talk to a hundred people growing up in Glasgow at that time and there would have various different versions of of that. You know that that story. Um, unfortunately, it, it's it's a place where I probably didn't belong as a kid from a middle class family. But you know, as I write in the story, we we had this. Yeah, you know, we were scallywags at the end of the day. But the the draw to the bright lights of a city is a story of many. Um, and for us, it was it was no different going from air to Glasgow and, and really, you know, completely different kids, comp- completely different life and. And of course, trouble, so much trouble. And, and there are many stories written about you know, the uh, the streets of Glasgow over the years. Um, it's not a, a new story, but you know, mine was was one that I was fortunate enough not to not to get involved in too much, and and personally didn't really come to any great amount of harm. But um, you know, recalling stories like that are are tough, um, uh, and as I said, kind of unrelatable to. You know, kids growing up here, and not not for everyone in in Australia. There are definitely areas in Australia that that um, kids have really tough upbringing. You know, uh, if I look at Jimmy and Elizabeth, for example, there's plenty of stories that have come out of there over the decades. Um, uh, the, your biggest, uh, the person who was more likely to do harm to you in your youth, though, was probably you. Um, because... <laughs> 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 Repeatedly as well. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, you think you think it learns, didn't you? Um, I think that was one thing uh, a mate of mine when he was reading the book. Who, you know, I'd heard some of the stories, but didn't really know everything. Um, said it's just like you know, I was not even halfway through your book where I was just frustrated with you with not having learned your lesson the first time. You know, and, and I think my old man always used to say to me, if there's a hard way. Uh, you know, if there's a difficult way or a hard way to do something, you'll find it. Yeah. Um, and he's dead right, you know. Uh, and it's reading the book, obviously, you, you realize that. You begin to realize the pattern of my repeated patterns of my behavior led to me make, not only making really bad decisions, but just creating a huge amount of chaos in my life around me, the people around me, family, friends, marriages. Um, you know, it's it's almost relentless, to be honest with you, yeah. until I get to a point where I'm forced to look at myself, my mental health and my behavior and, and, and try and sort of 
you know, unpack everything and, and sort it out. Your ability to shoot yourself in the foot was almost second to none. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't know what to say to you other than, you know, um, <laughs> I, at the time I thought I was doing the right thing, um, you know, um, but I, it wasn't, I feel anyway, as if I've had, you know, I've had half a life so far, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 45, I feel as if I'm kind of halfway there. And in the half life that I've had, I feel as if it was split in two. You know, there was there was pre two thousand, yeah. then there was post two thousand. Yeah. Um, you know, I've lived here in Australia now for for uh, for longer than I lived in the UK. So, you know, it's I feel very privileged to, to be able to live here in Australia and and be able to write about my story and hopefully help other people that are, are going through addictions or or who are trying to support loved ones who are going through addictions. I mean, the book's been out for a couple of weeks now. We've had literally thousands of messages from from people uh, who've been able to relate to to a lot of the stories in the book or the feelings or the motivations uh, or the actions that I took to try and, you know, conquer it or seek help. Um, And that's been really rewarding, to to be honest with you, in the book. And And I guess surprising. It was something that I didn't expect or or think about when I was going through the process of writing the book. But now that it's here, uh, I'm realising that there are messages of hope and lessons that are being learned in the book that, that people are engaging with, which is is amazing to, yeah. to read. I must admit, I, I looked up how old you were because I thought, uh, when I saw you were 45, I thought, my God, he's packed 70 years into, four, into 45. Because <laughs> the frenetic pace at which you lived your youth is, uh, you know, mm. uh, even to the point where you're working for Marco Pierre White and all that, what you were doing then was even kind of crazy. And you were yet you're in a place professionally that was, you know, almost nirvana for you. Yeah, it was. And, and you know, don't forget, as I write in the book, I was a, a grunt, really, in, in Marco's kitchen. I was a very junior Oh, yeah. Chef, and so I wasn't uh, in Marco's sort of spotlight uh, every every day, but I was able to certainly get away with with with, with quite a lot because I was naturally talented. Um, you know, and had I not been, I wouldn't have been able to to, to do a lot of the stuff I did. But as you say, the, that frenetic pace that you talk about is something that anyone who worked in, in London kitchens and Michelin star restaurants in the nineties will be able to relate with. It, it was, you know, a, a, a period of kitchens that, you know, just simply would be illegal today. Yeah. You know, it would be front page news everywhere, the, the goings on that went on in those kitchens. And, you know, I, there's two parts of that as well. You kind of acknowledged, put up with, uh, I would say enjoyed. There's a, there's a weird Stockholm syndrome kind of thing going on there as well, <laughs> where, you know, you there was this, feeling that the harder you worked and the, the tougher the kitchen, the better chef you were, you know? It was that weird sort of thing that was going on. Um, but, but everybody was going through that. Everybody wanted to accelerate their career by working in those kitchens, and they understood that there was a price to pay for that. Um, and everyone did it willingly, and, you know, no one was chained to a sink. Uh, you know, we all came into work every day, and we all had a choice. We didn't have to. But we did, and, and there was a greater reason for doing that. And a lot of us have gone on to have our own careers and, and be better chefs because of it. Yeah. Is there still a bit of that in you somewhere uh, at, at different times, that, uh, that, that sort of that upbringing that you got in the kitchens back in those days? I think it, 
you know, it's it's weird. I kind of reflect back on it, and and I'm a lot of ways I'm confused by it. If I think these days of, it's like my wife said to me, if Alfie, our son, he's you know, three and three quarters, or or Ava, who's twenty, decided to be a chef, and she went into her kitchen and she was, you know, exposed to that environment and and that sort of lifestyle. How would I feel about that? And you know, people sort of saying. To me back then, it's like, oh, you know, just, you know, it gives you thick skin or whatever. It's just ridiculous, all that stuff. There's no need for it. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm definitely glad to say that, you know, kitchens and a lot of, not just in hospitality, but a lot of workplace environments are cleaned their act up and, and, and are a lot less like that. It's interesting that people from my generation were brought up and taught how to behave like that. We emulated the behaviors of, of those chefs who, who conducted their kitchens in that way. And that was all we knew. We didn't know any better. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until years later that you stop and reflect and go, hang on a minute, this cannot be right. This doesn't feel right. It's, there's got to be a better way. Um, and definitely when I think about my kids being in that same situation, it's horrifying. Have you, have you thought about, uh, you know, when Alfie grows up and he's sort of 17 or 18 and finds the book in the, in the, uh, in the bookcase and has a read of it, uh, have you thought about what that's going to be like for you? Look, I think it's no different. As I say, I've got a, I've got a 15 year old, I've got a 20 year old, and, yeah. and I've never had anything from my kids. And for me, it's you, you can, you know. I think anyone who's listening to this, who's got kids, will know. If you like your kids, you'll get, you'll get found out pretty quick. Yeah. Um, and and the result of that, them them finding out that you lied to them, is is uh, is, is pretty bad. So I, you know, Alfie will grow up and he will see things. To read things and be told things, and and you know he he like my eldest daughter will have an open dialogue with his with his papa to you know to ask questions and and hopefully not make the same mistakes I did. Yeah, what do you hope people take out of the book? I I hope that you know it cleans up some of the you know the the little snippet stories that have been uh, in magazines and newspapers over the years that, that semi glamorise you know parts of my life taking drugs or addiction or working in these kitchens for you know in those environments where you know I don't think glamorizing snippets really was was great I you know I felt like there would be people who were playing around with drugs or struggling with an addiction or you know uh, young kids who are getting into the industry who might read those little snippets and, and emulate that and the thought of that terrified me and so writing a book and putting it into context that actually there is a whole heap of bad stuff around this that creates utter chaos in your life yeah. and will lead you to a position of regret and shame and, uh, and and lead to broken relationships and marriages and all the bad stuff that I've written in the book. Yeah. It is not glamorous. Um, and so, you know, definitely think twice before you enter that world. Jimmy Barnes does the forward in the book for you. You're obviously uh, kindred spirits in a way. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, I only know Jimmy from, um, you know, from from let's say his post wild days. You know, he's an incredible blog who has an incredible life and, and and story to tell. And so, I I'm related to Jimmy so many ways. On the other side of that, where we're both homebodies, we both love pottering around the kitchen, cooking. You know, he, he is absolutely brilliant uh, when it comes to cooking. He gets semi obsessed with 
cooking techniques, uh, like he's obsessed at the moment with um, with his smoker. He's got this really high tech smoker. Um, he bought one the same as mine, and you know, we're, it's often that you know we're shooting text messages back and forth, talking about um, optimum temperatures <laughs> of them. Uh, that the smoker should be set up depending on the ambient temperature outside, which is determined by the time of year. You know, it's like if anyone sort of had a snapshot into some of our, our uh, uh, messages, they'd, they'd probably cackle. Um, it's pretty funny. Tell me what a, 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 one thing in the book I want to know about because I, I reckon I'll love this. What's a tonic caramel log? Is it ton- Oh, mate, you would love them. They are. So you can buy them with holes and woolworths. They are in the, you know, in the, what's it? There's an international section in the, in the supermarket. Yeah. So if you go into the international section, you will see uh, tonics caramel wafers and tonics tea cakes are the two that they sell in the supermarkets here. There's another one called a tonics caramel log, which is exactly the same as a wafer, except it's covered in toasted coconut. And when we were kids running around Glasgow, they used to toast the coconut twice a week. It was such a tropical thing for us back then to smell coconut. Like, there's no coconuts in Glasgow, you know? Um, <laughs> but the biscuits. So, a caramel wafer is essentially layers of wafer, very crisp, light wafer, that have layers of caramel put on top of that wafer. And then they're all sandwiched together. And then there is the thinnest layer of chocolate draped over the top of it. Oh. It is amazing. And the tea cake has a biscuit. And then the most pillowy, soft um, blob of uh, marshmallow, and then, then again is covered in this very light, delicate coat of milk chocolate. It, it, they're stunning biscuits. One of the world's best biscuits. Oh well, I knew there was a reason I wanted to ask you about them because I read about them in the book, and your your, your <laughs> love, your love and passion for them. I thought I got to ask him about that. Do you still get a Do you still get a buzz when you walk into a into a kitchen now, and and you're about to do something? Is that is that still that fire still in you? Absolutely. You know, I cook a lot at home and, and, and love. I, I think there's, there's a difference between cooking professionally for customers that you don't know and cooking for family and friends who you know not only appreciate it, but who, who, who really want to understand and, and learn something or, or you know, the, the environment in which you're cooking feels different. And so your cooking inevitably is different as well. You know, cooking is such a, a tactile thing that that is a product of how you're feeling, much in the same way as an artist. If they go through a period of aggression or depression or, or you know, highs and lows and whatever, you can see that in their artwork throughout periods of their, of their works. And cooking, very much the same, you know. If I have a very – I'm in the doldrums, I'm in a patch of – Semi depression or whatever, you know, you can really see that in my food that I'm cooking, whether it be at home or in a restaurant, where the dishes are, are you know, the, the the heavier and a bit darker, you know, visually, and and the plating style changes as well. It's food is a, a form of art that, you know, really is a existential part of of how the artist, in this case the chef, is is feeling. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing to look at, and that's why restaurants are such a joy to go and eat and, um, and experience, because it is exactly that. You're experiencing, particularly when the chef owners, uh, an extension of, of that person's art and how they're feeling in their life and, and so on and so forth. And it's, um, you know, it's a, a time now in COVID where we are not, as a country or as a world even, getting to enjoy those experiences 
the way we should. You know, we are, uh, you know, getting takeaway versions of it, and yeah. you know, it's it's helping keep businesses afloat, but it's certainly not um, uh, uh, the experience that our restaurant should be. You know. Is that is that why you're drawn to art? I, I notice a lot of stories that, that I've seen about your house and 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 that that you've you've got a lot of pieces of indigenous art and you seem to be drawn to to art and looking at art. Is that what draws you to it? It's that it's that uh, that same sort of thing that you do when you create a meal. I've always been drawn to to art. You know, I didn't know anything about indigenous art before I came to Australia and started visiting communities. And you know, the art centre was one of the first places I went to simply because. You, you're able to see through that community's art what they're eating. You know, you see the, the because they draw and they carve and they depict in various ways uh, the food that they're eating seasonally. Uh, and and so it's a great starting point. It was a great starting point for me to not only meet people that could share some of that knowledge with me and explain, um, you know, food and culture, but also. Definitely, uh, I, I was actually able to connect in a moment with where I was standing, which culture, those people. And artwork is just, you know, don't you think it's such an amazing way to connect with people yeah. or with a culture or with a generation even? You know, and it's something that I continue to be fascinated by. Yeah. And one one story I wanted to ask you about, which I think is one of the most hysterical stories in the in the book, is kicking Madonna's dog in the in the kitchen at. Marco Pierre White's uh, restaurant. Um, do you do you ever think about that? Yeah, look, it's it's um, funnily enough. I was with someone in London, and um, he was I think he was Madonna's agent or or a PR or something. And I was telling the story, and he goes, "I just I cannot believe that." And he sent her a message while I was there, um, and then she was you know cackling about it on the yeah. when they were messaging. It you know. It, there is something like, you know, I mean, London, it's just people reading that story also would, would go like a filthy rat in a kitchen. Yeah. You know, it wasn't unusual in any kitchen in London to be further than, I think there's, like, there's some statistic that if you're in central London, you're never more than five metres away from a rat or something like that, <laughs> which I could believe. You know, it's, it's fairly, it was fairly normal to see uh, a large rat anywhere, but. For me, yeah, I, I was unlucky where um, I thought I'd seen a rat. It wasn't, and it was her dog, and, and, <laughs> which there was a lot of screaming and carry on. And that was, you know, I think, and whether or not I, you know, uh, under the influence of narcotics had, you know, uh, imagined the rat, um, you know, I, I seen a rat when it was actually a dog, or whether or not, it, you know, it was one of those things that your peripheral vision that therefore looks like it, who knows? But for me, I was very focused or more focused on trying to make this foie gras terrine uh, at the restaurant, which yeah. was uh, this amazing, it's in one of his books is called Wild Food from Land and Sea. And the foie gras terrine is in there. And if you look at a picture of it, it is just one of the most stunning pieces of art within itself, the way it looks. It looks like a, a piece of marble. Um, it's yeah. incredible. And it was also probably the most expensive terrine that I have ever made in my life. Um, and probably it will remain that way because I can't imagine me making a, a terrine that expensive ever again. Yeah. <laughs> but to this day, I've got a space. It stands up, you know, like a great piece of art, you oh. know. Um, all these years later, that stands up today to be something that you would have 
serve to you in, in one of the top restaurants anywhere in the world and look at and go, this is the most amazing thing to look at and it's one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten. And that's a credit, right, to the artist. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you want to write a cookbook? Um, I think it'll happen inevitably. I just didn't think I really – I didn't want – I wanted to do a book that, that people would find useful rather than one that people would put in their coffee table. Yeah. Um, I just I, – I know from friends that have written these sort of, you know, coffee table-style cookbooks that it takes a huge amount of time and effort and – yeah, and for what to sit in someone's coffee table? I just I didn't see the point in that. So, but a cookbook which people can can pick up and and use reliable recipes, I think that is a very valuable thing to do. So, yeah, I, I, I'm game to say that will probably happen. Yeah, last shot's a, a powerful book with a, a lot of powerful messages in there, as well as a lot of obviously great stories and and, and reminiscing about uh, some good and bad days uh, in your life. But uh, you survived it, which I guess is you know the probably the number one most astonishing thing about you in many ways. Yeah, look, uh, as you say, a lot of lessons to, to be learned, and there for for a lot of people, whether they're they're going through the doldrums themselves or whether it's someone that's trying to support a partner or a loved one. Yeah, I, I know. Right in the book, you know, quite frankly, I, you know, I, I feel on the other side of this like I've won a gold medal. I feel like a cat that had eighteen lives, not nine, and I've used yeah. all of them. Um, you know, I do worry that at some point, you know, that 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 it, that it catches up on you. That health wise, that you know, um, who knows? I don't know. Uh, that that'll be a surprise for the future. But certainly for me, I, I feel very lucky to. To be standing and living in Australia, I feel very lucky to have such an amazing family around me. I'm looking forward to, as I write in the book, to being a nono. Um, I think it's something my entire life, weirdly, that I've aspired to. You know, with my eldest being 20, you know, how long will that be? I'm not sure. But, you know, for me, I'm really enjoying, obviously, being a father again for the fourth time. Uh, And and as I say, I'm kind of... Yeah, there's something in me. I can't, I can't drop the being a nono thing. I, I really, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I, and I think it's because, is it because you get more leeway as a nono? Maybe somebody listens oh, to yeah. that. Oh, you can do you anything. Know? Yeah, you got, you got, you got the uh, open ticket. You got the get out of jail free card with, uh, with that. Yeah, you've kind of got carte blanche to absolutely to be a bit naughty and and give the kids what they want and 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 then hand it back, right? Yeah, um, that's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. Trust me, it's it's very, very, very good. Hey, when do we see you again on on television? Is there a MasterChef celebrity version coming? I believe there is. MasterChef celebrity hits our screens sometime in October, I believe. Yep. I'm not sure when. Um, that'll be announced, I guess, over the next month or so. But um, yeah, so we'll be back on the screen then. It is a cracking series. Um, the celebrities themselves are fantastic. You already look who's on there. You know. Um, some some amazing celebrities are on there, and and incredibly vulnerable of them to come on, you know, on on a cooking show, not being experts and just you know going for it. Um, and I've got to say, they all they all went for it. They were all sponges. They tried to learn as much as they can, not just from us, but from each other as well, yeah. which was was brilliant to see. So I'm sure people are going to love that. Uh, and does anybody call you Barry? Is there anyone in the universe who still refers to you as Barry, or are you a jock to everyone oh, now? Mum. Yeah, Mum definitely calls me Barry. Yeah, I mean, I've got no like, I don't, you know, there's you, you get your online trolls that think it's some kind of you know playground taunt or something calling me Barry. I don't care, my name. Um, I just got called Jock from from a very young age um, in, in kitchens, and it stuck. So uh, I ended up changing my name by Big Paul in the early two thousands, and 
and that's that. I don't really think about it. But yeah, mum mum calls me Barry. But if I'm back home and we're in the supermarket together, and she'll shout Barry in the supermarket, I don't even turn around because I've just you know it's been decades <laughs> I've not been called that. So why would I turn around? Um, so she gets a bit cross. So I need to. I, I got to. I got to remember that when I'm home. <laughs> well, I'm off to uh, Coles to find the uh, the caramel uh, wafers uh, <laughs> and check them out. Thank you so much for spending some time having a chat to me about the book. Congratulations on uh, on on your guts to to write it and your guts to publish it and to stand by it. I think it's a it's a, it's a really good thing that you've done. So uh, all the best to you, mate. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, as I say, it's, it's um. It's a, it's an amazing place to be. Having 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 read it, as I say, at this point, it's been out. Well, I think it's two weeks. It's been out. And it's on uh, number one in a whole heap of different categories, which yeah. were um, which um, very proud of. And 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 yeah, I love. I, I think it's amazing. And and if that message uh, is relatable to some people and it can help them along the way, then then I'm a happy guy. Yeah, good on you. Thanks, Jock. Really appreciate your time, mate. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. It's raw, it's honest, it's colourful. It's exactly what you'd expect from him, isn't it? Uh, and uh, it's available now through Simon & Schuster. Last shot, Jock Zonfrillo. My thanks to Jock for his time uh, and uh, having a chat with us here on the Authorised Podcast. My thanks also to our podcast partners, CSCG. Uh, have a look at the people you're dealing with. Have a look at the services that they have on offer by jumping on their website, CSCG. Dot com.au or give them a call. They're always up for a chat on double nine seven four eight triple three. Whether it's tax, whether it's uh, your your superannuation situation, whatever it is, give them a call. Uh, the good people to deal with. CSCG. Hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Authorised Podcast. Till next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Have fun. Listener.